Uh, hey, I just want to affirm uh, our youth pastor and his wife while I'm up here today. I uh, just want to say thank you so much for all of your leadership and uh, hard work, commitment. Uh, just thank you all so much. Really, it means so much to us. Means, yeah, yeah, we need to do that. Yeah, so good. Hey, and uh, I know John already kind of alluded to this, but man, the church, the church family was so generous with our kids, our children's ministry, and our student ministry, letting those kids go to camp this year. So thank you so much for that. It means so, so much. And moms and dads, thank you for investing in your kids' spiritual lives, honestly. You know, it's really hard with, you know, music camps and sports camps and all the things that are going on to try to, you know, squeeze that in. And y'all did that. And so thank you for that because it means so much to kids. As I've said so many times, your child's character is going to take them farther than their talent ever will. All right. So, so important to invest in their character. All right. So, so proud of Brandon getting baptized today. Brandon and I have been talking about, you know, his, you know, you know, kind of his little spiritual journey going uh, for a while now. And I was just so proud of him for what he was doing today. And I was reminded as I was preparing for today about my, when I got baptized, I was a little bit younger than he was. I was about, you know, in the eighth grade probably. And uh, no one explained to me what I was going to do or why I was going to do it. And I had never been in church before. I had never seen anybody get baptized. I had no idea what to expect. And so I, I, I go to church on a Sunday morning. I walk down the aisle and I asked Jesus to be my Savior, and he said, come back tonight, we're going to baptize you. Pastor came over to our house, he talked to my mom and dad, said, we want to get less than that water as soon as possible. So like, you know, less than eight hours later, I'm getting baptized, and my, the guy, the pastor's name was Dale. I had no idea what to expect, and Dale didn't tell me what was going to happen. I just knew I was supposed to change clothes back there. We had a baptistry room, room back there, so I changed clothes. I walked down the steps, and if you've been into a lot of churches, they have that baptistry kind of built into the back wall back there. And I'm standing up there in front of all these people, and Dale grabs me and just plunges me under the water. I'm about as big as I am now. When I was in you know, eighth grade, I was a little over six feet tall, weighed about 240, all right? He plunges me under the water. I thought, man, he's trying to kill me. And I, have I joined a death cult? I mean, what is this, you know? And so I start flailing around and kicking around trying to, and I was, I was fighting for my life in that water. And so I, water goes everywhere. And, you know, like I said, I weigh about 240. Dale's trying to get me up out of the water. My feet are like up like this, you know? And it was awful. I look like a whale sticking his tail up in the air, you know? I was just flailing around. And it was really, really bad. And uh, I thought, well, maybe, you know, if you can survive this, you're worthy of membership. You know, I didn't know what was going on. And it's just a testament to God's grace in my life that I ever came back to church. He finally got me up out of the water, and you kind of see the shocked look on everybody's face, like, what just happened? But I had no idea what we were doing or why we were doing it. And so every, ever since then, every time we baptize someone, I'm really methodical. I try to make sure that we, we you know, this is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to do it. This is why we do it, et cetera, et cetera, because I don't want anyone to go through what I went through. And honestly, I want everyone's baptism to be well understood and well thought out because the meaning behind it is so profound. It is so important, the baptism that you have. Because it's a picture of what Jesus has done for you, and it's a picture of your life with Christ. And so the title today is Dying to Live. We're in Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. So if you'll turn there, and man, i got to tell you, this has been so good for me. I've been learning so much for, um, through Paul's letter to the Romans. Romans chapter 6 and verse 1. And he says here in verse 1, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning? 
that grace may increase. We talked about this a little bit last week, and I grew up <clears throat> hearing, you know, that, hey, once you're saved, you're always saved. You know, you, you're not going to ever be able to lose your salvation. And it kind of brings up this question, can a person who's saved, who's given their life to Christ, can they just go out and sin all they want and live any kind of sinful lifestyle you want after coming to Christ? Look at verse 2. Paul says, by no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. And if we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly, certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. We know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with so that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. And the death he died, he died to, to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. All right, look at verse two. The original language, Paul is saying something like this. It's unthinkable that someone would say, Man, now that I've got my soul saved, I got to, you know, get out of hell free card. I'm just going to live any way I want to live. That is just a terrible, terrible abuse of the grace and the love of God. Why not? He says, look, notice what he gives you. He turns his focus to your identity in Christ. In Christ, you're a brand new creature. Everything has changed. And he says here in verse 2, he says, we died to sin. I really like the way one person put it. He said, we, being what we are, dead to sin, how can we live in sin any longer? We, being what we are, how can we live in sin? And we talked about this a little bit last week, but living in sin and lapsing into sin are two entirely different things. Those who ask Jesus to be the Lord and Savior of their life, sometimes we do lapse into sin and we hate it. There are others, though, that are living in sin. They refuse Jesus in their life, and they celebrate it. And let's suppose you're at a concert. Now, humor me, this would never happen, okay? But let's say it's, you know, I'm dating myself here, but Lady Gaga or somebody like that. All right, you're at a concert, and at the, you know, at the, at the peak of the concert, Lady Gaga says, you know, she comes out here with her checkbook, and she writes a check to a charity like United Way or something. What is everybody going to do? Like, oh, hey, good job. Way to go. But let's suppose she comes out with a bottle of liquor, all right, and she starts doing a seductive dance with one of the you know, guys in the back. What's everybody in the crowd going to do? Woo, you know, awesome. It's so amazing. And you, know, you watch the Tonight Show of Jimmy Fallon say anything about getting drunk or getting high or whatever. Man, everybody starts cheering. Why? We celebrate sin in our natural state. We, we don't have any supernatural power at work in our lives we celebrate sin. We take pride in our sin. And in fact, we will we'll demand that other people take pride in our sin as well. But when you receive Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, Paul says here, something extraordinary happens. 
something that makes it impossible for you to go on in a lifestyle of defiance to God, part of you dies. Look at verse 3 again. Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his what? Death. We were buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead to the glory of God the Father, we may live a new life. See, what's what happened with Brandon today? When Brandon went under the water, it's like the old Brandon is dead and buried, just like Jesus was. Then he comes up out of the water, a new man, a new creation has been raised from the dead. His soul that was dead is dead and buried, but now his soul has been brought to life by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that is what baptism represents. Regrettably, when most people read this passage, they immediately smell water, all right? And if there's anything Christians love to fight about for centuries, it's baptism. But there's no water here. This is a dry passage. The Greek word that we have here is this word, is baptizo. It's a very commonly used word in Roman culture. And it meant to wash. Like if you plunged your hands down into the water to, to wash your hands, or if you're doing laundry and you immersed the laundry down into the water, or you plunge something into the water, you submerge something into the water. Now, what, why do we have this word baptism? Well, back in the Middle Ages, churches began teaching that baptism was necessary for salvation. Well, that creates a problem. What about people who are you know, on their deathbed? They can't get up out of their deathbed, but they want their soul to be saved. What do you do? What about infants? You know, what do we do about infants? And so they begin to you know, pour small amounts of water onto people as a symbol of their baptism. Well, this kind of became ossified in the church tradition. And before you know it, it wasn't long before all the baptisms were being done by sprinkling. And if you know your history, back in the ancient church, there was only one language being spoken in church. That was Latin. The problem was very few people spoke Latin. Nobody understood what was going on. In 1611, King James of England, he asked scholars to translate the Greek New Testament into English. And the word baptizo is there, and it means submerge. And when they told King James, hey, we got this word submerge here. We're not submerging people. We're sprinkling people. He's like, man, we got a problem. What are we going to do? He wanted to keep the tradition of sprinkling or pouring, all right, to avoid a massive schism in the church because in those days, church and state were one and the same. And the scholars agreed to fashion a new word in English, the word baptize. It was a cagey political move. A word that means nothing can mean anything, all right? And the people that sprinkle got to use the word, the people that pour got to use the word, and the people that submerge or immerse, they got to use the word. The Church of England got to keep its tradition. They kept sprinkling people. But those who protested, the Protestants, they began to insist on submerging people in the water like the Bible says. And they were kind of, you know, flippantly called the Baptists. Ironically, they were labeled with the very word they protested, all right? And they were drowned by the thousands. So, so many people were martyred for their faith. They were held underwater by the Church of England, the Church of Germany, all over, until they recanted their belief in submersion after salvation. 
And most of the people went to their death by drowning because they would not recant their belief that this word, baptizo, means to submerge or immerse. Now, why would so many sincere Christians be willing to die for a ceremony? Because they understood what the word meant. They understood what it pictured. And when you translate this word in the Greek, baptizo, with integrity, it changes your Bible like it does here. Look at verse 3. All of us who were submerged into Christ were submerged into his death. Paul is not talking about something we have done, but something that's happened to us. When I put my trust in Jesus as my Savior, I am immersed into Christ, he says. I am submerged into Christ. Theologians call this being in union with Christ. Uh, The Bible calls it the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but it really should be the submersion into the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist, that's a terrible name, all right? That's a terrible name. It should be John the Plunger, but that's probably even worse, okay? (laughs) But this is what he said he was sent to do. He said, I was sent here to perform a ritual in the natural realm that was going to be symbolic of what Jesus is going to do for you in the spiritual realm. Look up on the screen. He who sent me to baptize or submerge in water said to me, he upon whom you've seen the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes or submerges in the Holy Spirit. There are groups out there who say, you need to be baptized in the Holy Spirit after your salvation. The Bible is clear. You cannot be saved without being baptized or submerged or immersed in the Holy Spirit. That's what salvation means. Why do we have America getting weaker and weaker? Because we have a weaker and weaker gospel in America. I know it's July 4th weekend, kind of thinking about our country right now. What's happening to America? As goes the pulpit, so go the people. As go the people, so go the politics. And if there's a weak gospel in America being preached in our churches, then the churches are going to be weaker. And because the the foundation of American life is the church, All of our government institutions are built around the church, built around the Word of God. And if we're going to be preaching a weak gospel, we're going to have weak people, and we're going to have wild politics. And it's sad what's happening. But submersion into water proclaims symbolically what we believe has happened to us spiritually. And the natural is the shadow of the spiritual. And so I want you to look up here for just a moment. I want you to think about it this way. Imagine that you're the sponge, okay? And when I put the sponge in the water, okay, the sponge is in the water, but also the water is in the sponge. And that's a picture of what happens in bat- when, when you know, John said, I came to baptize in water, but he's going to baptize you in the Spirit. You are in Christ. Christ is in you. And so this brings up a great point. When <laughs> life puts on the pressure, you know, what comes out, you know? Hopefully it's Jesus. Hopefully Jesus is coming out because Jesus is in you and you're in Jesus. That's what should be coming out. But sometimes it doesn't. And that lets you know where you are with the Lord. Ephesians 1.13 says this, You were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God is in you. 
You are in the Spirit of God. This is what the baptism or the submersion into the Spirit means. And this immersion into Christ is part of the process by which we die to ourselves and are saved. This is how we died to sin. We're submerged into our Savior. And you might be saying, well, Les, I don't know if I exactly understand everything you mean. How does that happen? I don't know. <laughs> it's kind of a mystery, honestly. By the Christian life, it's a life of faith. There are things we become a part of by faith that are far beyond our present comprehension. I hate flying. And I get on those planes and I say to myself, I don't understand how this happens, but I'm going to strap it on and I'm just going to be along for the ride. You know, I don't understand it. Paul said this in 1 Timothy chapter 3, the Christian life is a great mystery, far exceeding our understanding. But some things are clear. He, meaning God, appeared in a human body. He was proved right by the invisible spirit at Jesus' baptism in the Jordan River. He was seen by angels, proclaimed among all peoples, and believed in all over the world, and taken up into heavenly glory. Paul says there are some things that we know are undeniable facts. We put our faith in those facts, and then we just kind of trust God for the rest. But there was a pattern. There was a purpose to Jesus' life. And you see Paul kind of bringing that out in this in this. Uh, in this passage here, like we were joined with Christ. We were, we were crucified with Christ. We we're unified with Christ. He's the author and perfecter of our faith. And so this road that we're on, this race that we run, all that happened to him physically happens to us spiritually. Jesus was naturally born. God became flesh, just like you and me. He was visited by the Holy Spirit. We call that his baptism. It changed the course of his life, just like you and me. When we are baptized in the Holy Spirit, we are submerged in the Holy Spirit, it changes the course of our life. It can't not change the course of your life. He was crucified. When you and I accept Christ as our Savior, Paul says here, we crucified the flesh. We crucified the natural man, the old man, the old woman that we were. And he was taken up into heaven. He was resurrected from the dead. The same thing happens to you and to me, Paul says. If we were crucified with him, we will be resurrected with him. And so when I come to Jesus for salvation, I am identified with all that Jesus did and became. I don't fully understand that, but I accept it by faith. God exists outside of time, beyond time as we experience it. And we can't even begin to imagine what it would be like to exist beyond time. But this is God's existence. And that time when Jesus died, when Jesus was buried, when Jesus rose again, the Bible tells us we were part of that. Somehow, God made us participate in those events and we identify with Jesus. Look at this, Ephesians chapter 2. This is a life-changing passage for me. God is so rich in mercy, He loved us so much, that even though we were dead because of our sins, He gave us life when He raised Christ from the dead. For He raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. So this is what that means. 
And I, there again, it's hard for me to grasp. But somehow, 2,023 years ago, when Jesus went to the cross and died, I asked Jesus to be my Savior in 1979. I did too, <laughs> you know? I don't quite understand that, but that's what happened. And in 1979, uh, you know, and sorry, in the year uh, 0 AD, Jesus was raised from the dead, all right? And in 1979, I was too. And in 0 AD, Jesus was seated in the heavenly realms. And in 1979, I was too. I don't quite understand how that happened, but I know that it did. And so I look at this passage and I think to myself, I am, I am alive. I am raised with Christ. And right here, right now in 2023, I am seated with him in the heavenly places, in the heavenly realms. You might say, wow, I like that, you know? I like being identified with Jesus in his resurrection. That's pretty cool. The truth here, though, look at verse 5. We become identified with Jesus' resurrection after we have identified with him in his crucifixion. If we have been united with him in his death, we will certainly be united with him in his resurrection. This is an if-then statement. This is a spiritual law. If you die with Christ, then you will rise with him. You can't be risen with Christ unless you die with Christ. Look at that word united. It's a word from botany. It means to graft one branch into another. And some of you may have some fruit trees or some grapevines. You've done some grafting before. You can take a branch from, say, a white grapevine, and you can graft it into a red grapevine. And you can have red and white grapes growing from the same vine. Jesus said this in John chapter 15. I am the true vine. My Father is the one who cares for the vine. Get your life from me. I will live in you. No branch can give fruit by itself. It has to get life from the vine. What is the fruit? The fruit of the Spirit of God within you. Things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Those things. You can't do that on your own. It can only come from the life inside of you, the life of Jesus within you. That's why I asked a moment ago, when you get squeezed like a grape, what comes out? <laughs> All right. This is one of the most important concepts for you and I to understand as a follower of Jesus. Life in Christ is not just I'm gonna follow. I'm gonna follow Jesus, man. I'm, whatever he did, I'm gonna do. You know, uh, you know that Sermon on the Mount, man. I'm gonna do that Sermon on the Mount thing. I'm gonna do it. No, it is getting his life from him. Do we do the Sermon on the Mount? Yes. But we say, Lord Jesus, I can't. Would you please do it through me? All right, that's what we do. Look at verse six. We know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body of sin might be rendered powerless so that we should be no longer be slaves to sin. Look at this statement. Because anyone who has died, what does he mean? Died to themselves, has been freed from sin. Why do so many of us struggle so much with sin? Because we've never died to ourselves. When you accept Christ as your Savior in a very real and genuine way, you crucify your old self. You invite Jesus in. You open the door to your soul in a very, very real way. And when you do that, you're doing it with the awareness. Man, this changes things. This changes things. My life will not be about me, just about me any longer. And when you die to yourself that way, you say, Lord Jesus, 
I've wrecked my life. I've made a mess of everything. Lord Jesus, I need you in my soul. I plunge my soul into you. I open my soul to you. The body of sin, the old nature is rendered powerless. You're no longer a slave to sin. And you've left one domain completely and you've moved from, to another and you've been freed from sin's power. Okay, Les, that's fine. But if I've crucified the old self, the old body of sin is powerless. I'm free from sin. Why am I still so tempted to sin? What Paul means here is that we are taken out of the territory. We are taken out of one realm, death in Adam. That's going back to Romans chapter 5. We're moved into another realm, life in Jesus, Romans chapter 6. Look what he said in Colossians chapter 1. The Father has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son that he loves. You've been moved from one domain to another. And here's what happens to us so often, though, because since the 1960s here in our country, we've been so inundated and saturated with Eastern thought. You see, in Eastern thought, there's no such thing as absolute truth. There's some truth in every error. There's some error in every truth. There's some light in all darkness. There's darkness uh, in all light. And there's some evil in all good, and there's some good in all evil. And so the people like James Cameron and George Lucas, who make our biggest blockbuster movies, you know, Buddhists and New Age thinkers and things like that. And so we see that symbol everywhere now. And it kind of infects our thinking. We begin to think this way, and it begins to really affect the way we look at the world. But look at 1 John 1.5. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light, and in him there is no darkness, none at all. And so here's what Western thought always was, that there is absolute truth, and there is no truth in error, there is no error in truth. There is light and there is dark and the two do not mingle. And in the end, there is an escape from darkness. And there's not good in everyone. Some are bad and some are good. Some are dead and some are alive. That was always the way we looked at things in the Western world up until the last 40 or 50 years. And it's had a huge, huge effect upon our country, upon our nation. You say, well, that's all well and good. How does that apply to my everyday life? Once you have been transferred from darkness to light, you need to know that from the first time in your life, you are free. You are no longer a slave and you are free. And for the first time in your life, you're free to choose for yourself. So I want to ask you to do this for me for a moment. I want you to imagine a country road, all right? And you see this country road, there are two big farms, two big fields on either side. And on one side of the road, the field is full of high weeds. There's an old shack and the, peeling, the paint is peeling. There's junk all around the house. The barn is run down. There's rusty equipment everywhere. Old junk cars are sitting out there. The entire property is neglected. It looks really, really bad. And the owner of this rundown farm is a cruel, immoral, drunk, mean man. Right? He's got a terrible mean streak. And if you had to pick three words to describe this atmosphere in this place, it'd be chaos, conflict, and confusion. And the sad reality is that this is your home. And your father's abusive in every way. You're just a child. He's a man. 
but he uses that power differential to his advantage in every way imaginable. Then you have all your brothers and sisters that are around you, and everyone's just mean. Everyone's critical. Everyone steals from you, but you can't leave because you're just a child. You can't leave. But most days you go out there and you, you're sitting out there playing in the dirt in the front yard. You look across the road. On the other side of the road, there's a beautiful farm with a big, beautiful house. You know, the kind of has like the, the white farmhouse and the red barn, like you see in the Hallmark Channel movie, you know, something like that. And there's beautiful fields are green and thriving. There are fruit trees and flowers in the yard. Everything's newly painted. And then the, the owner of that house is obviously outstanding. And he's even bigger and stronger than your dad. And you can tell when he's out there playing with his kids that he's really kind. He's full of joy. He's fun. And many times you're out in the front of your house playing in the dirt. You can tell he's looking at you. And you know he longs for you to be able to cross the road and come and live with him. One day out of nowhere, a man comes to your shack from Child Protective Services and he says, hey, if you're tired of being abused, neglected, and exploited, you can leave. It's your choice. We have a foster parent who wants to take you into their home. Who is it, you ask? It's that guy across the road. And your father hears this going on, and he's enraged, and he lies to you about the man on the other side of the road. He says he's unfair. He's restrictive. There's nothing but rules over there. You're not going to have any fun. His kids they're judgmental. They're mean, all right? They're full of hate, all that stuff. The man from the CPS stands his ground. He says, hey, just want you to know, all the legal work has been done. All the legal work's been done. Your father has been proven unfit. You can leave if you want to. The choice is yours. I'm giving you the ability to make the choice to leave. You decide to leave. You have nothing to bring with you. I mean, you're dirty. You're filthy. You've got nothing. But the man on the other side of the road, he's like nothing your father ever said. He's generous. He's kind. He's loving. He's joyful. And he's honest. And he's fair. After you've been in the house a few days, you're looking around. Everything's so beautiful. Everything's so nice. It's been awesome. You ask your foster dad, hey, can I go outside and play? He says, absolutely. All I have is yours, but I'm going to ask you one thing. Go play in the backyard, not in the front yard. Okay. And you go outside and you're playing in the backyard. What's the one thing you can't stop thinking about the whole time you're back there? Like, why can't I go to the front yard? All right. And so you go, you peek around the corner of the house, you know, you go around the other side, you peek around the corner. Like, what is it about the front yard? You didn't want me to go. And so finally, you know, you're kind of looking around. He's not looking, or if he is, he doesn't care. What's he not telling me? And so you go to the front yard. And as soon as you get to the front yard, your father sees you, and your brothers and sisters see you. He can't touch you. He can't come near you because of the protective order, but he can shout at you from across the road. He can threaten you. He can frighten you, he can confuse you, and he can anger you, and all his kids join in. Hey, hey, you. You know this is where you belong. You know you don't belong over there. You don't deserve to be over there. You don't deserve that. 
This new life you think you have, it's all based on lies. He's a liar and you're a fool for believing him. Do you think he really loves you? How could anybody love someone like you? I know what you're really like. I know who you really are. You have no right. You have no business being over there with those people. You don't have to play in the front yard. In fact, the backyard's a lot better. There's four-wheelers and swing sets and all that. But sometimes you don't really know why. Maybe it's kind of a rebellious streak or something like that, but you just kind of sneak away and play in the front yard. And finally, one of your brothers, your adopted brothers and sisters, asks you, he's like, why do you even go near that guy? Every time you go out there, he lies to you and he, and he yells at you and he screams at you and he tries to confuse you and deceive you. Why do you even go out there? You say, I don't know. I know it doesn't make sense, but I keep thinking the next time it's going to be different. But it never is. Yeah. I want you to see this verse as we leave today. Psalm 36. God, your love is so precious. You protect people in the shadow of your wings. They eat rich food in your house. You don't let them, and you let them drink from your river of pleasure. You are the giver of life. Your light lets us enjoy life. Don't let proud people attack me and the wicked force me away. Those who do evil have been defeated. Amen. The real pleasure, the real life, the real light is found on God's side of the road. All right? It's found on God's side of the road. And you want to stay on that side of the road. And the message here today is don't play in the front yard. All right? Don't play in the front yard. There's nothing there. And he's going he's gonna to scream at you, yell at you, deceive you, and confuse you. There's nothing there. And it's never going to change. It's never going to change. Let's all bow our heads together for a moment today. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, I just want to ask you to think deeply about your own life and where you are and where you're headed. I just want to ask you this morning, are you on the right side of the road? Which side of the road are you on? Which kingdom are you in? Which field do you live in? Do you live in the field full of dirt? Or do you live in the field full of fruit trees and beautiful green grass? Where are you living today? Have you ever truly trusted Jesus to be your Savior? Has there been a crucifixion in your life? Has there been a time in your life you said, Lord Jesus, I lay my life down for you. It's yours. I've wrecked it. I've ruined it. I've been confused. I've been defeated. I've been hurt. I've been exploited. Lord Jesus, I lay my life down for you today. Has that time ever come? There's really no magic formula, no magic words to say. It's the attitude of your heart to go before the Lord in a very real way, like I did in 1979, and say, Lord Jesus, my soul is empty without you. Lord Jesus, I need you. I want to be baptized and submerged into you. I want to be a part of you. I want you to be part of me. I want every cell in my body to be soaked with your spirit. Please forgive my sins and save my soul, Jesus. That's the attitude of our heart that saves us. There may be some of us here today that we know Jesus is our Savior, but we keep playing in the front yard. It might be today, today, the day might be today that you say, Lord Jesus, give me strength and wisdom to stay in the backyard, to, to stay away from those things and those people that have been dragging me closer to the road so that the liar can lie to me and the accuser can accuse me. 
And just ask the Lord to show you where you've been playing in the front yard and ask him to give you the grace and wisdom to go back to the backyard. And so, Lord Jesus, we love you today. Thank you so much for everything you've given us. And we just ask you, Jesus, to move in our hearts. And I just pray for all of us here today, but especially that person who has a wounded soul, that today would be a day, a day of resurrection and a day of healing. We ask that for your glory today, Father. 